0: Uh, there's spoop i always f- up this name <laughs>
1: <laughs> it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue it's so it's so, so tj tj I, I think i think jb wants to own the cold open well, i think you can't think you, you can't just, leave
2: that last comment on the cold open <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah,
3: that's true
0: i
1: Shout out to all of you in the posse out there. Welcome to episode 17 of the Plastic Posse podcast, sponsored by Goodman Models, makers of the awesome super sanding blocks. As always, I'm joined by three terrific modelers, TJ Holler, Doug Smith, and John JB Bonani. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. I am well, thank you. I'm fantastic. Tomorrow's Friday. Today, we have another great episode for all of you out there. We feature a fascinating interview with AK Interactive's master modeler, Rick Lawler. Rick is known for his amazing dioramas and vignettes, and his work is masterful in its ability to convey a story to the viewer. I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy that interview. We wanted to let everybody know that episode 17 of the Triple P has been sponsored by Posse members Aaron Cook, Grant Mayberry, Ethan Idenmill, and Terry Wilkinson. We really appreciate the support from you guys. It means a lot. Yeehaw! Thank you, guys. All right. You got a yeehaw from Doug. (laughs) (laughs) These members of the posse used our PayPal.me link to help us out, and we really appreciate it. If you're enjoying our podcast and you'd like to help us out, it's really easy.
2: It is so easy. Just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. There's no www. In the upper right-hand corner, there is a heart icon. You can also access this heart link on any of our podcast episode pages on this site. Just click the little heart, and then you can donate any amount you'd like. We really appreciate the support. Uh, if you don't want to donate, that's okay. You can still support us by uh, taking a few moments to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. Five-star reviews really help us get this show out to more people uh, who are interested in scale
3: modeling. The Plastic Posse is also sponsored by Goodman Models, makers of the super sanding blocks. If you want to be able to sand with precision, plain edges without rolling over the side, and have more control than with traditional sandpaper or sanding sticks, you need a set of these on your bench. You can order your very own set at www.goodmanmodels.com.
2: Can I say I used my super sanding blocks for the first time during that 48 hour build and they are wonderful. I really enjoyed using them.
0: All right. Besides the Triple P, there are several other great modeling podcasts and social media content providers out there. You guys should check them all out. For podcasts, there's On the Bench with Dave, Ian, and Julian from Down Under. There's also Plastic Model Mojo with Mike and Dave, Scale Model Podcast with Steward and Friends, The Model Geeks with Darren and his crew, and Just Making Conversation with James and Malcolm. In addition to podcasts, there's Sprue Pies with Frets with Stephen Lee. It's a terrific blog. And Jim Bates, a scale Canadian TV on YouTube and a blog as well.
1: Check them out. So, Doug, did we get any listener feedback this time? We did.
2: And not as much this week, but that's fine because it'll go
1: faster. We have from Chris
2: Lawson, I have a social media shout out to recommend. Boy Lay Hobby Time. His channel is fairly new, but is really enjoyable. His videos are short, fun, creative, and informative. He is doing some really cool things with LEDs I had not seen before. Check it out. His YouTube channel is Boyle Hobby Time, B-O-Y-L-E-I Hobby Time. Give that a watch. That that sounds like fun. I definitely want to learn about LEDs, especially with my Star Wars stuff. Alan Morell just responding to the slam build idea. I build old kits like the attached frog Seahawk, a two-night build. Say hi to John, who is a good friend. Is he you, JB?
0: Yes, I okay. know Alan really well.
2: Hi, Alan says hi.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Alan. So for those who don't know, Alan is the show chair for Heritage Con in Hamilton, Ontario. Probably one of the best shows you know on the eastern seaboard and something I look forward to every year. So I'm excited when they have it again.
2: Very cool. Riffing on the Triple P logo, James Pernikoff said, Is the brush mightier than the blade?
0: Huh. The mighty brush. When it hits my finger, not so much. <laughs> I would blade. say the blade one's <laughs> up.
2: But... <laughs> Charlie, CJ Johnson. I just started listening to you guys two episodes ago, and I just finished listening to today's episode. You guys rock on the show. A lot of information and enjoy hearing about all the different types of builds. Keep it going. Thanks, CJ. Antonio Rio, or Zarillo. Hi, thanks for the answer. Looking forward to the interview whenever it will happen. He passed on a couple ideas for segments, etc. We'll get to that probably another time. We'll get to some segments there.
1: Thanks for the suggestions, Antonio. We'll take a look at them. Really appreciate it.
2: Awesome, yeah. J.J. Joyce. Absolutely love what you guys are doing. The roundtable discussions add a great deal and are a welcome addition. Great guests, some, of, some I've never heard of, but will always learn something. Keep it up. Thanks, James. And you know what? That's it for our uh, feedback for the week. And I'm surprised. I I don't think we got anything from DeShizzle this week.
3: Hold on, guys. I I do have one more. I forgot to add it to the list. I just pulled it up now. It was from Instagram, and it's a guy named Alexander, and his Instagram handle is Alexander's Models. And he sent us a message on the – like a private message on Instagram. said, really good podcast to listen to while I work on my models,
1: and he enjoys every episode. So thanks. Awesome stuff. Awesome. It's good to start seeing those comments from Instagram. Now, Doug, did you say Zach didn't even give us any feedback? There was no
2: feedback from DeShizzle. Zach DeShizzle Grizzle is not on our feedback page. Now, maybe we missed something, Zach, and I'm sorry if that happened. But otherwise, we look forward to hearing from you, man.
1: Yeah, come on. Step up your game,
2: Zach. (laughs) That wraps up our feedback.
1: We appreciate the feedback. If you guys want to send us feedback, it's always welcome. You can go ahead and go on over to our Facebook page, The Plastic Posse, over on Facebook. Or you can hit us up at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you, so keep them coming. TJ, what's our uh, social media shout-out segment looking like this time?
3: Well, to start, I'll, I'll give a brief update on our Instagram page, which is newly launched. I think it's a couple weeks old now. So we have four hundred. I'm sorry, 843 followers. I've had quite a few people commenting on the the pictures and sending us messages, and so on and so forth. So I, we really appreciate it. I I let the guys know what you know what people leave us and what they you know messages they send us. So we all appreciate it. And I'll probably start to add. It's a little light on content right now, so I'm I'm trying to call pictures from everyone so we can get like a little rotation of some of our work, what we're working on so on and so forth but if anyone that that is a social media manager which i am not if they are one knows it's a it's a lot harder than it looks it's it takes a like some like dedicated time so we're we're getting there but uh to to start with our segments i think john has a youtube channel he wants to recommend
0: yeah thanks you know i got to recommend it's a it's a simple channel name e and e so i a n space e it's by ian candler he's a us modeler out of the midwest and really great figure painter. I've been following his work for a long time, and he's got some really easy-to-watch videos that makes figure painting look look pretty straightforward. He's great at describing the colors, the techniques, and his photography is really, really great as well. So uh, check him out.
3: And moving over to Facebook,
1: I think Scott had a recommendation uh, for Facebook.
3: What do you got, Scott?
1: Yeah, I actually have a couple of things, Facebook and a website, and uh, we'll obviously talk about this a little bit later, but Our guest on today's episode is Rick Lawler, and you can go ahead and find him at facebook.com forward slash Lawler Rick. And then you can also go to his website, which is ricklawler propaganda.com. And that's P-R-O-P-A-G-A-N-D-A.com. Hesitate to give the posse homework, but If you guys want to open that website before you listen to the interview, I think it would be really helpful. Rick's work is really unbelievable, and taking a look over there at some of the vignettes, the dioramas, the armor pieces that he's done, I think will give you an even better perspective uh, from the interview that John and I were able to do with him. So anyway, you might want to check that out.
0: He's on Instagram as well and goes under rick.lawler.
3: Cool. And speaking of Instagram... My social media shout out this week is kitchen scale modeler. So it's kitchen underscore scale underscore modeler on Instagram. I came across him cruising through Instagram, like I like I do in my downtime. According to his bio, he is an Irish model builder that lives in New Zealand. So I thought that was pretty interesting. He is a aircraft modeler and a pretty damn talented one at that. Uh, mainly World War II, but all, all nations. I haven't seen any Japanese, but a, a lot of a British. A lot of American and a lot of German. And he's even sprinkled in a few Star Wars kits, some like Bandai 172nd scale. I think most of this other stuff is 148 scale. And it's uh it's pretty good. Uh he goes with like a like a realistic weathering type thing, which which we all here on the posse like to see in um in our aircraft. So I would definitely go check him out on Instagram and give him a follow. He's doing some really high caliber work. I am looking at his page right now, and it is
2: pretty fantastic,
0: yeah, I like his yellow ten the uh f w one ninety d thirteen that's one of my favorite aircraft, and he nails uh the modeling on it, and then also the underside with natural metal and you know the r l m and just overall really talented guy, so he got another follow from me right now,
1: yeah, it's a beautiful build. I've been able to see that aircraft a couple of times once when it was down in Phoenix in the Champlin Museum, and then another time when it was up in the Seattle area at Paul Allen's Museum. Uh, that that build, he really captures the look of that aircraft.
3: I am a big fan of his Hurricane and the Tropical Scheme, which is one of my favorite uh, World War II schemes. I love the Tropical Scheme with the azure blue on the bottom and then the the tans and the the earths on the top. I think it's, it's so cool. He knocked that one out of the park. Yeah, for sure. It's also got that
0: Vokes filter underneath the nose, which is, it just adds an extra, it just, it just makes it look more unique. So great weathering, great paint. I I do love that blue man that he, he did a fantastic job capturing it.
1: All right. Awesome. Well, those are great, great social media sites. As always, we'll go ahead and and post the links to our Facebook page and you'll also be able to see and uh, access the links on our show notes on the episode uh, pages on the website as well. Speaking of social media links, I wanted to point everybody over to a wrap-up on YouTube of an event that we're going to talk quite a bit about here in a second that we participated in that was fantastic. The Model Officers Mess had a 48 and 48 event where they had modelers come in and It's a charity event benefiting uh, Models for Heroes, which is an organization that we here at the Posse really support and uh, think is terrific. And the challenge was essentially to build a 148-scale kit in 48 hours. All uh, four of us on the Posse participated in this event, and we all four finished our models. So you can see a kind of a wrap-up of all the models that were done over the weekend. If you go to YouTube, And you search for model officers mess wrap up that that should take you to where that video is. If that doesn't work, you can always check uh, the show notes like I mentioned before. And
3: and I'd also like to point out um, we roped some of the friends of the show in to participate with us. They also all finished. And if you go to our Facebook page, I compiled uh, three. I think I picked three pictures from everybody. Um, everyone that participated and I put them in an album and it's the album is, I think it's just like posse and friends, 48 and 48 bills or it's something it, you should see it. It's it's going to be the newest album and you can see all, all of our builds uh, consolidated right there.
1: Yeah, everybody did a, a great job. Now, TJ, he had to show us all up. <coughs> he uh, unfortunately had a late start, so he knocked his entry out in 24 hours and it turned out fantastic tj why don't you talk about that uh bmw you did okay
3: so a little uh, short backstory my wife was out of town this previous weekend so i had originally turned down joining the build because it was just me and the kids and we had all this stuff planned i have two daughters so we had you know all this cool stuff planned and it was really fun but then saturday afternoon. While my one daughter was in gymnastics, I went to Charlestown, West Virginia, which if you are familiar with the geography of Northern Virginia area, where I live is not that far away from where I live because there's a little model shop there that I've been meaning to go to. So I had some time to kill. Uh, So me and my younger daughter drove out there. They had one 48 scale non-airplane kit. And it was Tommy's. they call it German military motorcycle, but it's a BMW R 75 with a sidecar. And it was like, $15. $15. So I was you know, like, yoink. And I uh, took it home with me. I started, I guess I had like 30 minutes to spare when I got home before I had to go pick my daughter up uh, from gymnastics. I think I built the whole thing in the 30 minutes. I might've even primed it. No, I primed it when I got back home. So yeah, it built up in like 30 minutes. I primed and painted it after we watched a movie and had dinner saturday night and i stayed up i think until midnight got most of it painted i think i think i got all painted and then the next morning while my kids were still in bed because well my older one likes she's like practically a teenager she likes to sleep till like 10 o'clock in the morning um i got up early like i normally do i finished painting it i think i was done with it around lunchtime uh, I, i'm sorry i finished weathering it and then I took a couple pictures and yeah that was it
0: I I chose a Tamiya kit as well. I went with their 148 scale Panther. You know, I had it in the stash for a while. And and when the challenge was presented by uh, Malcolm and James, I I thought, what what better, you know, what better kit? There's no turret. It's pretty simplistic. And fortunately, I had a photo etch set that I could use to use the screens. Um, I'm going to give the rest of the set to Aaron Cook, a good friend of ours. But anyway, the kit itself, super easy. You know, I started with the running gear. I always like to get that out of the way first. Tamiya's 148 a scale line is very crisp, and there were some injection pin marks on the tracks. That's really where the build got kind of bogged down at the beginning. You know, I probably spent the first hour and a half to two hours resolving those issues. So super glue in those injection pin marks, sanded. And then what I did was I, you know, temporarily fixed the wheels to the hull using white tack and then glued the tracks to the wheels so I could pop off that entire assembly. I have some pictures posted online that illustrate this on my Facebook page, and I think they were shared at some point on the posse, but that made it really easy. And at that point it was, you know, slam the upper hall on, put all the little details. I added some cast texture and by the end of the night I was priming. So that was, that was really good. I think I spent, you know, the first day, I started a little earlier than everybody because I was able to finish work a little early. And I think Doug would join me as well. At that time we started, Uh, 3.30 Eastern, 1.30 Mountain Time, and flew through the build. It was a lot of fun. I participated in the live event uh, for most of the day on Friday, and that, that was fun getting to know the modelers. You know, there was James on there, and kudos to him, man. He was a great MC. you know, not only keeping everyone engaged, but also, you know, throughout it, he's playing commercials and having plugs from you know, various people throughout the UK. It was, it was just a really fun event in that regard. And I, I thought raised a lot of awareness uh, to a cause that's been just doing stellar work. Going back to my build, I was able to get some primer on it and then actually painted it on Saturday morning. And then we conducted an interview, Scott and I, on Saturday. So I had to take a break and, and we'll tell you who that interview is with later. And then I got back on it that evening. What was cool is I realized, uh, you know, during the build, you don't have time to wait for things. And and after I do it, TJ's like, oh, I do this all the time. So I, you know, at that rate, I'm feeling kind of like a rookie, but I used AK's real colors, which were a lacquer based paint. And probably within 20 minutes, I'm starting weathering already on top of them. I, I think there's, you know, people preach, oh, you should wait 24 to 48 hours before you start doing that. Well, you don't have that much time when the build is supposed to take that long. So Went right into weathering and, you know, got it all wrapped up and knocked out with time to spare on Sunday afternoon so I could go get some groceries. Yeah, overall, really fun time. I'd do it again. Um, And maybe that's even a challenge to ourselves. Uh, You know, do a little fundraising action here in the future. You know, I was really happy to see Ian and Doc uh, join in on the fun. Their builds are fantastic. Ian did an elephant and Doc did a BA64, both 48 scale Tamiya. So maybe there's something we can do in the future, Scott, um, to to raise some money for a good cause.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun to combine, you know, getting, you know, some impetus to actually finish a kit over a weekend, but then also, more importantly, doing it for a great cause. You know, Models for Heroes, as I mentioned before, is something that we're all big fans of here. You know, we made some donations and uh, raised a little bit of money, and we had a good time too. Yeah, speaking of raising money, I want to note I just looked
0: up the fundraiser for the weekend. They were a little short of their goal, but they did raise 867 pounds, which is which is pretty impressive for a quick 48-hour event. Um so that that's great news. So in addition to TJ and I building ground pounder vehicles, you know, Doug took up the gauntlet to actually do something more difficult. I consider uh definitely more difficult as an aircraft. You know, the guys masking canopies. Uh, doing decals certainly something that I skipped out on. So, Doug, could you tell us a little bit about your build? Absolutely. Um,
2: I I kind of freaked myself out. I haven't built an airplane in so long, and I love airplanes. So, I chose an easy airplane of a, an aircraft that I love. I did Tamiya's as wulf 190 190A8. Um, I happened to pre-order some decals that came the day we started. My decals at Eagle Edition's uh, sheet of decals showed up and they were wonderful to work with. But I went into this and I was very forthcoming. I, I told him I didn't know if I could do this in 48 hours. And I kind of just went to town on it. It was a lot of fun. There were a few spots that if I had more time, I'm sure I would have been able to improve on. There were a couple of seams that uh, that didn't quite get it, especially on the wing roots. And that was because there's a guns, there's uh, cannons in, in the way. And starting over, I would have cut those cannons out and I would have put in brass barrels and it would have been great. But overall, I, I had a blast. I started also same time as uh, JB did. I, I uh, had the, the, the model assembled, simple simple cockpit, assembled it, sanded most of the seams, had it all together, and I actually primed it and had my first coat of uh, the gray, the the bottom gray, on that kit, uh, that night I even black based it, I even did the squiggles and the, and the shading and, and, and then blending with that, with that color as well. Um, in one night. And I was kind of shocked at myself, but I also used a lacquer based, uh, paint. I used Mr. Color for mine. And so it was real easy. Once you put, put that paint on, I could paint right over it. I could do the next step and the next step. And then I gave it maybe an hour before I started decaling And, and then once the decals were set, I was, I was weathering Saturday night. So I had it all wrapped up the next morning.
0: Doug, if I remember correctly, I looked up on the screen probably about five minutes in and you already were airbrushing. I mean, well, because I,
2: I airbrushed, (laughs) I airbrushed the cockpit parts and then I, and I, then I detailed them and then I put it together. So, so I did, I did pre-painting and then assembled them um, rather than going the other way around. The side panel, control panels on the side, um, were separate pieces, so it was easy enough to 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 paint those while they're not in the model. Yeah, it was simple, and it was a lot of fun. Like like JB said, I'd do this again, pick something different, and go to town. But this teaches me a lesson that I have no excuse to not have at least a dozen kits done at the end of the year if I knock <laughs> one out any <laughs> Anyway. So, so that's that was my experience, and I had a great time, and I loved working with the guys from the UK and the guys from Model Geeks and the 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 guys from uh, the Netherlands. That was a that was a lot of fun to just shoot the breeze and get to know these guys. Anyway, and Scott did something completely different than the rest of us. As a matter of fact, Scott was kind of unique in the entire group. Tell us about that, Scott.
1: Yeah, it was. I guess I was pretty much the only guy to do a sci-fi subject. I had uh, picked up fine molds. 148 scale TIE Fighter, the Revell boxing of it, and um, it appealed to me because first of all, I, I really uh, was inspired by TJ's build of the kit, and, and I knew it was it made into a really nice replica, and of course, being a TIE Fighter, it doesn't exactly have a million pieces, and I tend to be a little bit slower in my build, so yeah, I put that together, and lots and lots of prep work on it. The kit overall is pretty good. The, the solar panels are a little bit tricky especially on a rush build and going back to a comment earlier about the uh, brush being mightier than the uh the knife that that's definitely not true because I put my knife into my thumb right at the very end i oh, actually man. i actually finished my tie with 12 minutes left in the 48 hours so I kind of squeaked it in under the wire and got it done but um, it looks pretty good sitting on the on the shelf now, and it was a lot of fun. Like these guys have said, great cause, and I'd do it again. Anyway, that was my build. John, I know uh, you and I have been having some discussions kind of offline about doing these sorts of things, you know, making builds that incorporate efficiency as a part of what we're doing so that we're getting projects kind of move through the process a little faster. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, sure, Scott. That's a great topic to bring up. And I'm and I'm hoping to engage everybody on this conversation with we're lucky that everybody participated in the build, and I think we all learned something. And then also with our unique subjects, probably can share some light on Doug with Aircraft, yourself, and sci-fi, and then TJ just not sleeping and throwing together something in the matter of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when we talk about efficiencies, it, it kind of all starts at the very beginning. And and I learned that it was fun in this case because, okay, I have a 48 hour build coming up. What do I need to do to complete that build? I learned that I don't necessarily do that with a lot of my kits. You know, typically I go grab a box and it's like, okay, I'm sitting in front of the TV or I'm at the bench and I'm like, you know what? Eh, let's build it. Let's just start it and see what happens. And, and those builds typically seem to linger and seem to kind of drag on where in this case. I came, you know. I posted a picture online several days before we actually did the build, and it's it's got my paints, it's got my tools, it's got the thinners I'm going to use, it's got the the adhesive. So it's it's all ready to go. There's no searching for anything. There's no you know thought behind. Okay, what am I going to do next? I even had the camouflage scheme picked out in my mind, and, and with knowing you know the chart, you know the the course I've charted, I was able to really already, I think start ahead and, and be more efficient at modeling than I typically end with projects. And, and I'd like to just throw out a question to each one of you guys. Is that how you approach this build as well? Or, you know, again, TJ, he's, Oh, I am not know how shop. I'm just going to buy this and build it. But you know, maybe, maybe Scott or Doug, did you find yourself doing that? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I, uh, like I said, I had pre-ordered some decals. I ordered them this Saturday before we started. I gave myself six days and fortunately they showed up. I was ready to rob those from another kit if I had to, but I went and bought the correct paints. And, and I, I, know that I built a, a similar kit 20 years ago. And so I kind of had an idea in my mind of what I was going to do uh, before I started, but I had it all. My table was set up, but I decided I wasn't going to cheat at all. The, the plastic bags inside the box were still sealed. I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm not even gonna touch this thing, but I've got everything sitting on the bench ready to go before I start.
0: Scott, did you did you kind of take the same approach?
1: You know, I, I took a little bit different approach. I mean, I kind of knew in my mind, um, I've always been a little bit more of the blue-gray guy on the TIE fighters. You know, they're either kind of a lighter gray or a blue-gray. So from a planning perspective, not nearly as much as what you and and, and Doug had invested in there. But I think what I discovered was I don't finish a lot of kits and I tend to be so perfectionist that my builds drag on and on and on. And I realized, you know, I kind of reminded myself of the value sometimes of enjoying the experience, enjoying building along with friends, enjoying building for something other than perfection, you know, having a good time like we used to when we, when we started in the hobby. And so I think for me, that was probably my biggest takeaway. Was just you know enjoying the process and focusing on completion rather than absolute perfection in every single element of the bill.
0: No, that's that's really great feedback. And I I joke about TJ, and I don't want to leave him out of this conversation. You know, it seems like you did it on a whim, TJ. But did you did you think about staging anything beforehand, or you just jumped right into it?
3: No, uh, I did not think about anything beforehand because because like I said, I had not originally planned on do on on joining. I, I wanted to. Um, But I knew my wife was out of town that weekend um, because my original plan was to do a 48th scale tank. And then I would have, yes, I would have planned something. I I was either going to do T-55 because I've I've done one before in the 48th and I have aftermarket decals to do more. I think I have some like Syrian ones or Afghan ones or something that I wanted to do that Um, or a 148th scale Sherman. But I just I decided not to and then I happened to find this little motorcycle. So really the only, what I learned is I should do more one scale stuff. Cause it's a uh, really fast, especially when it's a motorcycle and it's literally, you know, on one fret, you know, one sprue that's like four inches wide by eight inches long. I mean, it, it's hard to beat that.
1: It really, it really turned out great though. I mean, for a kit that is really that small, um, of course it's a, to me, a kit, so you're getting really great quality, but You know, you had paint chipping on it and some weathering. I mean, it really turned out great. Well, thank you. It was all right.
2: We always talk about improving with every build. And there's no reason why that same principle doesn't apply to a a fast build, a weekend build. You know, I I know now what I could do different to make that model better. So just apply that every time. There's no reason why my next 48-hour build can't be better than the first.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, Doug, and and maybe you need to expand, you know, maybe just talk a little bit more about it. I I certainly would echo that when I, when I look over the Egg Panther, even though it was a 48 hour build and, you know, we were going like gangbusters, um, I, I, looking back, you know, I'm thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe if I did it this way, I could have squeaked in a few more techniques or, you know, pulled off something a little bit different. So it, it was really a learning experience in that way as well, you know, sitting back, understanding, Okay you accomplish something really cool in a short amount of time, but then you start to think about what could I have done better just by, and that's even just maybe pre-planning using different products, using different techniques. And and that's something that I've, I wouldn't say I've necessarily written down, but I've remembered and I hope to apply in my next build and just understanding what those sequence of events were for this 48 hour. And um, yeah, I I just found it really enjoyable again, a slammer build. It was fun. And Scott, what really resonates with me is, I didn't really care about, you know. I built toward to my standard, but it, it goes without saying. Sometimes when we build, you know, some of us build towards competition, or you know, L, you know, hold ourselves to an extremely high standard, which is you know, competition level. But what what in what I found in this build, it's just like, let's go, man. Let's just get it done. And and you know, the results. To be honest, I'm super impressed with everyone's build who participated in the event, and they, I'd be proud to have those on my shelf at home. So. I just think major kudos in that regard.
1: Yeah, I agree. And and also encourage everybody to check out that folder that TJ made on our website because our buddy Ian Bonner, uh, the elephant that he did, he actually incorporated a Zimmerit on a 148 scale tank destroyer. Uh, Doc, uh, with his BA-64 armored car, did a really terrific job of weathering on what's a really tiny little subject. And there, you know, there were a bunch of really awesome models. And I think it really showed that people were invested not only in the, you know, the communal aspects of the build where we were, you know, trying to raise money for a cause, but also enjoying the process.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, I I have to call out some of the modelers, you know, James, he started with with an aircraft and then pulled an audible, I think, late Friday night and finished a Sherman box diorama uh, by Sunday and and I found that incredibly impressive another gentleman I believe he was from the Netherlands finished a landing dock diorama with figures and water and, and you know we were chatting before the episode started one one of the guys I believe is out of the UK he completed a a scale F18 Hornet I was again Florida I can't even build an aircraft you know at all let alone in 48 hours so again, I was just really floored by the, the level of, um, you know, j- just, just the sheer, how can I say this, the cojones of some of our, um, you know, participants in, in tackling some big builds and, and pulling them off in a matter, you know, in a matter of 48 hours. And I know the geeks made a lot of great progress. You know, uh, I think it's Scotty, he did the P47. Uh, he might not have finished, but man, it looked pretty close to me. Uh, that that paintwork was, was beautiful. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. And and he did it with an old monogram kit. Uh, and then Frildo had a 109 uh, at the end of the day, but he started with a P40 and, and again, pulling an audible under that short amount of time and seeing the end result. You know, again, it might not have been finished, but it looked pretty dang close to me. One thing I will comment, and and maybe the aircraft modelers that are listening can help me out. When the guys, the geeks, especially when they posted pictures of their progress, they all had a rag on their bench. Maybe that's something that aircraft modelers love to carry around just to polish the wings of bottles. But I, I I certainly don't have one at my desk. I, I just found that unique. Uh, I don't know if anybody else picked up on
1: it. No, I missed I miss that. I do want to, speaking of aircraft, though, I do want to give a shout out to Posse member Mark Ewing. That uh, Hellcat that he did was really, really sharp as one of my favorite builds of the weekend as well.
0: Yeah, yeah definitely for cool. sure. So thanks guys. I really appreciated that discussion. I think it's important to really highlight the cause just one more time. And that was all through the modeler, the model officers mess on Facebook and, and specifically in support of models for heroes. And, and you can go to their website, models fantastic organization championed by Malcolm um, and it's just a great cause for, you know, really great people. With this 48-hour build, it, you know, it, it's opened up my eyes to a lot of possibilities, you know, we as posse members could possibly host one in the future for a charitable cause. Maybe roping our friends down south and in, in Australia, maybe the boys in Kentucky as well, get the geeks and even the Canadians. And and if if that's of interest to you, you know, give give us uh, you know, give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. I certainly would be open to it again. It sounds like everyone else on on this broadcast is is willing to do it too, and and I think we have some uh, you know momentum to carry the torch that the boys over at the model law models officers mess have lit, and and I'd be happy to uh, you know kind of organize that event and maybe try to get some sponsors and and hopefully bring attention to a, a, a similar worthy cause.
1: Well, that sounds great. I'd be all for it. Okay, well, besides the 48 and 48 event that we all did last weekend, what's everybody else been working on? TJ, how's your bench looking?
3: Um, It's looking pretty good. So the little motorcycle was actually build number eight for me this year, uh, which is insane. What a boner. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, it, so I'm signing off. I'm done. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> In between uh, our last recording session and this one, I finished number seven as well. So technically I got two done in, in the last two weeks. Um, number seven was Tommy ISU 152 and 135th scale. Probably one of my favorite subjects um, ever. Yeah. Is just it's so <laughs> ridiculous. Um, I've had that kit. I've had it for a long time. It's one of the first armor kits I built because I love I'm a big fan of self-propelled guns. So when I first got into armor, I, I bought a bunch. This was one of them. I think this was the first self-propelled gun that I bought. Um, it's been painted since at least two, February of 2018. I have a picture dated I think it's February seventeenth, twenty eighteen, of it in 4BO green with decals i used the kit decals nowadays i probably would have painted all the markings but back then i definitely used i did the one with the white stripe around the casemate and there it, it has sat since that picture i think when we recorded last time i had pulled it out i had spruced up the paint job trying to do my best uh impersonation of jb and uncle night shift with some modulation and and what what uh martin's called like I can't remember what he called it, but you're using a darker brownish black to, to paint in where you would want grime to be. I tried that. I did some heavier modulation than I would normally do because I'm not, that's not really my thing. I don't think I'm very good at it. That's why I don't do it, but it kind of worked. And then I went to weathering it and I'd originally didn't really want to use pigments, but I said, you know, F it. And I went back with what I knew because I just wanted to get it done. And it actually turned out pretty good. I was really happy with it. And other than that, and then finished the little motorcycle, that's pretty much it. Doug,
1: what about you? What's on your bench?
2: Right now, I've been tinkering with something out of the uh, off the shelf of doom. Um, I've been playing with my A4 Skyhawk, A4C, 48 scale Hazagawa. It's never going to live up to what my current standards is just because of building errors early on. But I've been having fun with it. Decals are on. I started playing with weathering i I don't really have a lot of experience with weathering a high vis aircraft that well yeah they got really dirty I've seen plenty of pictures but uh, generally when you saw them they weren't nearly the dirty that I'm used to seeing in in your modern Navy aircraft you know the Navy doesn't know a clean plane so so I'm trying to trying to get the hang of how to make the white belly look dirty without making it look gray how to get that you know and and get streaking in the right places and just playing around and it's a lot of fun right now it's an experimentation because eventually my uh my 30 second scale trumpeter a4f is going to come off and i'm gonna i'm gonna want to know what i'm doing with that
1: awesome what about you jb
0: i have a few projects ongoing you know one of them is uh you know obviously the u-boat it's it's still in progress and i really got to get it done patrick uh I, I owe you one, man. I'm, i believe me, I'm working on it. And then I have another uh, vignette that I'm working on, a special project. It's, it's nearing the finish line. Maybe by the end of the week. But more importantly, you know, instead of you know trying to finish some builds, I'm in this mode. You know, before you go to a nationals, there's a time, you know, a couple months out. You're like, all right, there's enough time where I can really dedicate time to to a build I want to take. And, and I think I'm at that moment where I'm starting to think about, okay, what, what is the kit that I want to focus on uh, and, and really nail to bring to the show? And, and that's, that's, that's a process I'm going through right now. I got a stack of kits. I'm weighing them, uh, which one I want to do. And, and I'll probably start that soon. So that's, that's where my mind is.
1: Well, we've also got a couple of group builds going on. TJ, how's your t 3485 coming along?
0: Hold on a minute, Scott, what's on your bench? Yeah, you're not that. You're not getting
3: away that yeah, He's getting yeah. off easy. Come yeah. on, this,
1: you try this. You slump dog <laughs> called out, man. Uh, yeah, just so uh, T3485 still on my bench. Finished the uh, had a couple of key pins in the frial tracks, and I'll get those weathered up this week, and then uh, it's on to final weathering on it. so I uh, better get my uh, rear in gear though TJ's uh, catching up with me gonna pass me any time now he he's a whirlwind you are talking with
2: number of kits, right scott <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so so anyway T3485 and then uh, after that we'll see but um yeah right now that's what's uh, on my bench so how's how's uh, your kit coming along tj um it's coming along so i think the last
3: time we talked about it I can't remember if I had finished painting or building it. Um, I have, it's been built. I primed it. I've painted it. That's where I am now. So it's in full paint. It's got an and a layer of, of modulation. I don't know. I guess I, I'm turning it into JB, I guess. I, I did like a slight modulation on it. Not, not a whole lot. Not as something as extreme as the awesome one. Well, ex- extreme. It's not, it's not really, but the one that John did that's in our group build as, in a, announcement that's awesome. Uh I took a lot of inspiration from that from like like I said I I don't do a lot of modulation, so I don't think I'm that good at it. So I kind of looked at his to see where you know the 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 light the lighter shades would would look the best because I'm I'm going to do a two tone one that I found randomly on the internet. It has to exist. I'm assuming there's a picture of it somewhere. I found a a colored uh, like um drawing of it I guess of a side profile and it's 4BO with uh, some sort of lighter gray green sprayed over it and it's got yellow turret numbers which are awesome and a red star which is also awesome so it's got green gray green yellow and red so it's a little more I I like the combination of colors and I'm going to use (laughs) AK real colors quote unquote 4BO which is not at all close to what 4BO probably looked like and and I'm not, I'm not a stickler for color. I'm not one of these people that's like, that's not the right shade of blah, 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 blah. But I do know what 4BO looks like and it does not look like this. And But that's okay because I can use it and it's actually, I did a little test piece I, and I think I sent it, I think I put it on in the group. I mean, to that little picture that I have, it's almost the perfect color. It's close enough. So I'm going to do that. I'm going out of town this weekend, so I won't be able to do it this weekend. So maybe next weekend I can start working on it oh and then i tried the gluing the road wheels to the the lincoln lake tracks like like john did and i told him before this that i kind of like in my head was like that's that's dumb like why would you want to do that like who does that <laughs> like not uh, obviously completely forgetting that john's been doing this like four times as long as i have but then i did it and i'm like oh that's why you do it because it's actually it's actually really convenient
1: JB is uh, is another T thirty four. You are kind of considering it last time. Is another T thirty four eighty five in your future?
3: Yeah,
0: definitely. I would say definitely one forty eight scale, and that might be one of the models I build for nationals. And it'll be, I think it'll be painted as a as a modern day one from Yemen. They they have one that's like tritonal. It's like they pulled out a, you know an ammo or an AK profile guidebook and said, yeah, we're going to paint them th- like this from World War II German vehicles. <laughs> So I, I think I might build one of those. But going back to the Field kit, I do have the Chinese volunteer version. I've been bitten by the what if bug a lot lately, and I might get a lot of stones thrown at me. But the World of Tanks game has a T-34-88, where they slapped an 88mm gun on a T-34, and it has like a Churchill stowage box on the back of the turret. So I think I would trigger some purists if I build it. So I, I might do that.
3: <laughs> uh, it's worth it just to do that
0: <laughs> it's got for no red, other reason uh, right exactly it's got red fuel tanks so it, it's pretty obnoxious it's got these large kill marks on the uh barrel too so uh, who knows I, I might i might whip that together uh you know over the summer
1: yeah that sounds intriguing for sure doug what about you is that t thirty four eighty five gonna move down the line
2: it will it will eventually I'm. i'm gonna Probably watch some of JB's videos and anything else I can find on YouTube to to get some ideas. Because, like I've told said many times in the past, it's just, it's armor and it's not a thing I do. But I really enjoy the building, the construction part, seeing it come together. And I know I'm really going to enjoy the painting of it. So yeah, I'm going to do it.
1: Well, let's talk Tie Fighter group builds. I've already spoken about building the Fine Molds 148 scale Tie Fighter. TJ, you going to jump in there with another Tie Fighter? You were one of the first people that completed your tie in the group
3: um yeah i want to i i definitely do i think i said before i'm a even though I, i'm i'm a rebellion guy i i love me some rebels uh you know luke skywalker is my hero uh but i have a thing for tie fighters i freaking love them and um i have like five in my display cabinet i have more tie fighters than i have anything else star wars in my cabinet and i have a bunch in the stash yes i do want to do the fine molds tie interceptor. I think the same one that John has. I have one as well. I really want to do it, and I want to like probably take a little more time on it than I did the forty-eight scale one. Probably do it as Suntier Fell, who was a he is in like the expanded universe. He's the one that has the red stripes on the on the wings, which I've done before, but now I want to do another one, and I'm probably going to use this kit to do it. So it'll be a normal tie, you know, the bluish gray all that kind of stuff. But then on the tops and bottoms of both of the, the angled, you know, wings or whatever, there's, they call them blood stripes. So it's like bright red stripes down. And it's, it's pretty cool Has a neat little splash color.
1: Wow. That's going to look really, really good. JB, what about you?
3: Yeah, I
0: I'm going to get to mine eventually. It's, it's certainly not moved off the, the near term pile. It's, you know, it, I think it'll be one of those builds where once I jump in, I won't pull up my head until it's finished. And, I'm really inspired by all the work that's going on in the group page, and and certainly Scott, you know, major credit to you. Your build over the past weekend is has, has certainly lit in the fire under me to to start to start my Tie Fighter. So I, I'm just waiting for that right moment to pounce. I got to get some of these Mojo Busters out of the way first. So
1: I hear I hear you there, Doug. What about you? Uh, any plans for another tie?
2: Um, eventually, but probably not part of the group build. I mean, I know there's no it's open-ended there's no end to the group build so maybe in a year but right now uh that that tie striker i did kind of makes me want to do maybe a blue squadron x-wing do blue leader or something from rogue one because i love those colors and uh i've got plenty of x-wing kits so
0: that's probably what's going to happen with that hey thanks for that scott really appreciate you know, us walking through the TIE Fighter group build. I, I think, it, again, another opportunity to build a common subject among modelers has been really fun. And, you know, as we go through the TIE Fighter group build, it's been going on for a few months. Again, I haven't started mine, but I will, I promise you. As we go into the summer months, I think this is an excellent opportunity to consider our next group build. You know, at the Posse, we're super lax when it comes to subject, timing, everything and anything in between there. So, I would just like to throw it out to our audience and our listeners to consider what what would you like to see a group build around? Is it an aircraft? You know, some of us, you know, dare I say, I haven't built one in years, uh, but I, I I'd be I'd be open to it. Another sci-fi piece, sure. Armor, I'm always game. I could do that tonight if you want to. Yeah, give us uh, give us some feedback. We're we're open. Is there a new kit coming out that you'd want to see built? I know the Crusader. Granted, it's a copy of the Italieri kit, so you know, we can just. <laughs> throw it away of course but no I, I joke i joke you know um it seems that's there's a hit job out against border model these days but uh anyway g- getting back to the subject at hand if you're interested in a group build if you'd like to uh recommend one to us we'd love to hear from you and and yeah we, we look forward to some feedback so thanks all Okay, and now it's time for the best part of the episode in my mind. You know, Scott and I had a really, it was just purely a privilege in, in that regard to talk with someone that I've certainly admired for a long time, a modeler that has really created a, you know, not only a name for himself, but his style, the way he approaches projects and, and also just the, the dioramas he creates and the story that he's telling. And, and that person is none other than Rick Lawler, AK Interactive's, um, you know, master modeler, as we mentioned before, Facebook, Instagram, and then also his propaganda website that talks about his work in detail. I'm extremely, um, you know, happy to present this and, and also proud. I think what we hit on in this, in this interview really gets at the heart of scale modeling. And, and we discuss topics that are sensitive in nature, but are dealt with in a way of, you know, respect to the subject matter. So I, I'm hopeful that everyone appreciates the, uh, the time that we spent with Rick as much as I did. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to the interview.
1: Okay, well, welcome to another Plastic Posse podcast interview. Today, we are very, very excited to be joined by renowned modeler, author, a guy that has had a lot of vignettes, dioramas, and modeling subjects on the covers of magazines and books. Rick Lawler, welcome to the show, Rick.
4: Well, hey, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks,
0: Scott. Thanks, John. Oh, it's our pleasure.
1: It's awesome to get to talk to you. As we told you kind of before we came on the air, we're big fans of your work, and uh, you've done a lot of pieces that are just really tremendous and have stood out and continue to stand out in kind of the sea of armor modeling out there, and we're excited to talk to you. Thank you. appreciate the recognition. So let's start out with some uh, background, you know, typical background questions. How did you get into armor modeling? How long have you been a modeler? Uh, you know, let's start there. What got you into it? Well, we'll start chronologically,
4: I guess. I remember my first model kit. Well, as good as my memory can be. I'm pretty sure I got it for my fifth birthday. It was a little Indy car. And I think it was given to me by, by my grandfather. Whether he knew what he was doing or not, he set me on my path. I painted that car probably 14 different times, silvers and blues and everything else. But I love doing that. Kind of fast forward a little bit. I, I continue to build models. I remember a couple of birthday parties. I remember a birthday party might've been turning, I don't know, 10 years old. And I had built what would have been the Revell Fokker D1. And my mom was gracious enough to include that on my birthday cake and a kind of Snoopy scene underneath it sort of sort of a thing. So I've been building models for a long time, all sorts of different things. It was about about the time I turned about, and I've always been interested in history, and that's kind of the common theme throughout thread throughout this whole thing. About the time that I was about fourteen, fifteen years old, I started really getting into you know moving up through history, starting Revolutionary War, World War One, all that kind of stuff. I got into World War Two, and that's that's kind of where I've gotten stuck since. And I remember. About 14, 15 years old, I built this huge, you know, huge, about three foot by two foot diorama of this Stalingrad scene. And my dad at that particular time was really interested in photography. This is back in the, what, late 70s? So it was all film, 35 millimeter film. He was gracious enough to take the photographs of this thing after it was done. And then the two of us worked together in the dark room to make the negatives and we sent it off to military. Jeez, Military Illustrated, I think the magazine was. So that was my first publication. You know, some months later, that was my first publication. Way back in the day. So the love of modeling started. You know, at five years old, continued all the way through. Go to college. I'd come home in the evenings or on the holidays, uh, summer. I remember at one point in time, for instance, you know, I didn't build models while I was at school, but I'd come home and I'd build models. So like a Christmas break, I remember building a Panzer One. You know, over Christmas break, and it was like one, two o'clock in the morning, and I was building this thing. And my mom comes wandering out. It's like, Rick, you still awake? And I was like, Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. I'm I'm just kind of really into this right now. And she's she's like, Oh, that's fine. You know, whatever makes you happy, kind of thing. <laughs> you know, and you know, God bless her. That was that was wonderful. Fast forward, get married, have kids. It ebbs and flows a little bit, but there's always been modeling in in the background for sure. For me, kind of were to get to where I am right now, I started really diving back into it in, um, I don't know, 2004, three, four, five, someplace in there. And that's when, you know, there was a bunch of magazines coming out and they were showing people's works. You know, there's like a new crop of magazines. The internet was just bad dial-up. You can kind of start to see people and what was going on. So in 2000, and I was... I was psyched. It was great. The forums are starting to happen and everything else. So, 2006, Euro military comes around, and I thought, I'm going to go to this because I've been building some models and I'm thinking I'm pretty okay, but I'm not really sure. But I know these guys are the best in the world. And so, I end up going to the 2006 military just for no other reason that I just want to see what these guys are doing. And I go, and I spent about two weeks in England and go to Folkestone and I do do the show and it was it was unbelievable and that happened to be the year that Phil came out with the hairspray thing too so that Panzer Four was yeah. there as best to show so I got to see the figures I got to see the the armor I got to see everything that was part of that and at that point in time that show was the preeminent in the world and it was also at that time that I met uh, Mig. And Adam from Meg Productions, which kind of started me on the professional side of things as well, go back a little bit. So I left that show with the thought in my head. It's like, you know, I'm not there. I mean, it's obvious I'm not there in terms of talent and execution and all the rest of that stuff. But I'm not too far away. I'm I'm trying to be humble here. I'm, I'm not too far away, but it gave me something to aspire to. I knew what that level looked like. And and it was really really, I don't know. I, I it wasn't it it was in, invigorating. It was in you know it was inspiring to me. It's like okay, I get it. This is what they're doing. This is how they're doing it. This is what it looks like when they're done. This is I got to see the real thing versus what I would see you know three months later in the magazine recap of that particular show or on the internet or everything else. I got to see it in person, and that was incredibly important to me in terms of just seeing how how the sausage was made for lack of a right. And it was great. It was great. And so from that point forward, I thought, okay, this is something I really I've been attached to since I was a young kid. I'm reattaching to it now. So how do I get better at doing what I'm doing so that I can kind of get to where this level of folks are, whether I get there or not, it doesn't matter, but you know, how do I make those steps? And so again, Internet is kind of doing its thing at that point in time. I started joining the forums, particularly for me at that point, it was Planet Armor. That was the one. And there's a little bit of background on that. I had in the back of my head, I really want to be published. (laughs) You know, as vain as that sounds, it's like that was kind of my threshold. Can I get something that's good enough that a magazine will put me in? That's kind of where my threshold was at that point in time. So I started looking around at the forums, missing links and on the rest of track links, Planet Armor. There's a few other ones that were around at that point in time. Planet Armor had a bunch of people doing it. They were all step-by-step builds. I started looking through who were the people who were signed up for it. And I recognized some of the names from the magazines and the modelers that I really admired. And I was like, okay, if I can get my stuff on here, just post my stuff, and be totally open, totally honest, totally available for criticism and critique and all the rest of it that goes with it without getting defensive. Maybe this is a way for me to get better and maybe this is a way for me to get to that next step which is that vanity thing which is to get published. And so that's what I did and that was probably the best growth period in my my career was going through all these different steps and posting stuff day after day after day after day. Here's what I did. Here's what I did, and people would tell me like they would be brutally honest back in the day. It wasn't It wasn't about breaking down. It was about building up. It was it was a really wonderful experience for me. And you know that form forum has a, a lot in my heart um, in terms of of develop me developing me as a modeler. And what would become as a professional modeler in terms of being able to take criticism and, and timelines and keep it on task and all the rest of that kind of stuff. It was all kind of built into that same formula at that point in time. It's
0: interesting you mention, you know, Euro military. I, I think you know some of the listeners may not know what that is, and you just you just nailed it where it, it's a place where it, honestly the titans of the hobby showed up and they brought their best work, you know, Phil Stasinskis pardon me for butchering that name, but, you know, Adam and Rinaldi showing up there. I remember the article that he wrote about going, and it was a, myst- a, a mythical place almost. You see that level of work, and then what I love about your story is, you know, finding the forums and those guys posting on the forums. So maybe maybe it's just for me, I'm curious, what what would you consider one of your older builds? Because I've seen a lot of your work, but I want to understand, you know, how how has rick evolved over time and and maybe what's one of your earliest builds where you started
4: that process speaking of planet armor i think those i think those forums are still up and i think you can still find it so you can go i think it's called the v bench and you can search my name and it will show up so there's a panzer 2 Lukes that's that's on there and that's a pretty darn early one uh when i started this phase you know the enthusiasm at that on that particular build was incredible i remember i have a real life i have a real job and everything else i remember getting up at four in the morning going down and working on this for about three four hours taking a shower and then going to work you know that's that's the kind of that's the kind of enthusiasm and drive i had at that particular point in time that's what it that's what i was doing so at the same time that i was doing the planet armor stuff I started getting into uh, military miniatures and reviews, Pat Stansel's stuff. And yeah. s- speaking of Mike Rinaldi, he and I, at some point in time, were pretty much the only two contributors that, to that particular magazine. I'll tell you a funny story on the backside. So my first my first published article was Spencer Pollard. He he did it in military miniatures in scale. And it was a hetzer. And I couldn't believe how wonderful that felt, you know, it's like, Oh my God, I got, I got published, you know, finally, you know, that, that was that threshold that was my vanity thing getting stroked there. And then I got my copy of the magazine and I read it. And of course I read it before I sent it to him, but I read it when I got the magazine. The first thing I noticed was how well he and whoever was doing all the editing. And I think it was just Spencer at that point in time, had taken my photographs and moved them around and blown them up and did all these sorts of layouts and stuff. And I was like, Oh, that's really, really cool. And then I read my text. <laughs> it just came across as some sort of silly recipe book. First you do this, then you do this, then I do that, then you do this. And I did about three of those three different ones. I think with, all with Spencer, I got to the end of those three of those. And I'm going, this just is crap, the way I write and the way that I'm coming across and everything else. So it was about that time Pat Stansel got in contact with me for Melton Ministers Review, and he was looking for contributors. I said, yeah, sure. And he said, okay, great. Seeing your work, it looks good. How are you? And this is where it gets funny. How are you with Resin? I'm sure he said resin. I had just come across, I had just done uh, M2A4, whatever it is, the half track, the U.S. half track, the whole Lion Roar photo etch thing where I soldered the whole thing up, and it's it's on Planet Armor. I had been working with photo etch like crazy because I decided that I wanted to learn how to do photo etch, so the whole thing. He said resin. I heard photo etch. Next thing I know, no, a few weeks later, I'm getting all these Resicast and Accurate Armor kits coming towards me of,
0: <laughs> of resin. trucks. Right, I remember the trucks in the magazine.
4: Yeah, boy. and I have no, I've never done resin <laughs> in my life. <laughs> I'm like, woo, what happened here? <laughs> so, kind of the learning curve. Like I was talking about, you know, it's like you have these little aspirational goals, like I want to get published. And then, like I said, I wanted to learn how to do photo etch for particular reasons. And I learned how to do that, Forced myself to do that. And then all of a sudden here I got this stack of resin kits that I need to knock out in the next, you know, 30 days. So that was my introduction into resin.
1: (laughs) Push you right into that pool.
4: Yeah, to the deep end.
1: Obviously early on your love of history informed your building and then you know you went to Euro Military and you decided to benchmark your work and and set about improving from a modeling standpoint but one aspect of your work that I really blows me away and makes me such a fan of what you do is your ability to tell a story say on the back of your Sturmgeschütz 3 with you know, the items that you've selected for your stowage and the way that you weather the piece, everything tells a story, you know, visual, whether it's a visual element of, a, of an armor piece or whether it's an actual diorama or vignette that's telling that story. Everything, y- your eyes just kind of want to wander all around the piece and look at all those individual elements and take them all in.
4: There's a couple of different components I think that go into that. One is it's like everybody will say it's like I I try to be aware of what's going on in my surroundings and you look at trucks and tractors and all the rest rest of it. I think if you look back through my work especially when I started working for the companies you'll see uh, evolution and incorporation of different skills or different techniques over time if that makes sense. And I'll kind of, maybe we can talk about that a little little bit later. One of the things that, especially recently, and recently being in the last three years or so, three, four years, two years, that I do to myself almost at the beginning of every project is that I will decide, here's an element that I will not use or here's an element that I will use. and And what I mean by element, it is, I won't use pigments this time. I will only use oils this time. I need to use pencils this time. You know, something like that that puts me out of my comfort zone in terms of just A, B, C, D. The model is done.
1: Okay. So then
4: yeah. it forces me at some point, through, especially towards the end, when you go to get into the final towards the weathering stages, because there's a there's a big wall. There's a there's a big thing right about. 98% done that I want to add pigments every time because that will finish the model. And I know it will finish the model. So if I take pigments away from my solution, then what can I do to add something to it? And that forces me to then look back at the model, look back at the atmosphere, look back at everything else that I've done up to this point and the conception that I had at the beginning, how can I reproduce, you know, the rain, the, the mud, whatever it is, the dust um, on this particular model in a diff- different method, and it kind of slows me down, and, and I think that that's kind of important, at least for me. You know, going back to you know the magazines and and that kind of thing, and I don't mean to belittle projects to go to magazines, but sometimes there's timelines there, and you have to get something out in a particular due date, and so there is a formula that i have developed for myself that can put something out there that is presentable i i don't these are these are words that are difficult and i don't want to make it seem less than 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 what i'm doing but you can get from here to there in a quick method that's not necessarily challenging and gets the job done and so what i try to do on every particular project and i like i said i've been doing this for quite a while now is Put an obstacle there that tells me that that, that I can't use this particular thing that so makes me go around it and find a different solution to do something to to get that finish. I don't know if I answered your 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 questions Scott um,
1: yeah I think so
0: no i I think you definitely did and it's a good lead in for a question that I had you know i've I've been following your Instagram a lot, and one of the projects that stuck out stuck out to me is your choice of using one particular technique or product only. And that was with the Vesp and using pencils only for weathering you know maybe maybe you could talk about the challenges that or or benefits that provides in in going through that process not only with that specific pencil like washes or or the certain effects created with it, but you know like you said, you know building your your toolkit and your skills um, you know just maybe expand on that
1: project
4: yeah, sure, thanks yes, yeah, so you know part of it is company driven so Obviously I work for AK. The pencils came out from AK. We're promoting the pencils. So part of it is because of that, that's in the background and that can't be neglected. That said, that gives, gives me the impetus to say, okay, here we go. What can we do with this stuff? And so that forces me to figure out how to either replicate what I've done with other materials or innovate and figure out what the pencils can do as a standalone that's unique. And the Vospo is a very, very good learning curve on that particular front because I learned a ton of, and, 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 you know, particular to the pencils, I'm still learning a ton of stuff on the pencils because I go and re- revisit them from time to time. But the Vospo is back to the pigments. How can I replicate grit? or stains or the rain marks and all the rest of this stuff in a way that's authentic looking, timely, easy to do, applicable to, to other modelers because as, as part of the industry, that's kind of what my job is, is to demonstrate that here's what they do and here's what you can do with them and here's how you do it. You know, I guess to my, my wonderment on the Vosman in, in particular was how far I could push those pencils at that particular time. It's like, oh my gosh, I was doing a bunch of the stuff that I would usually do with washes or or filters or this or that or whatever, and I was getting it all done with the pencils. So that all of a sudden said category A in my toolbox was now you know 80% of things I could do instead of what I thought it was 20% of things that I could do with it.
1: Building on that and, and speaking to the word you used earlier, innovate, Um, I've been following your M8 Greyhound that you're working on right now, and you're actually taking the pencil and grinding up the pigment and airbrushing that onto a model. Talk about that a little bit because it's fascinating.
4: Yeah, so let me give you a little pencil history real quick just so you kind of see my learning curve on this stuff. So when I met John back in Chattanooga at the IPMS Nationals, I was a last-minute add to that particular show. About two weeks before the show, I was told that I would be going and that I would be giving some seminars demonstrating the pencils. I had one pencil set in my possession at that particular point in time and had never used it. So I spent a week with the one pencils set that I had doing as much as I possibly could. did the seminar. Literally, I was working at the workbench, the AK bench in the vendor area and experimenting. And people would come up at that particular point in time watch what I was doing and ask what I was doing. And can you do this? Can you do that with them? Whatever. And that was a huge uh, learning experience for me because I had my little 10% that I had figured out on my own. Then I had like 40% of people asking me, can you do this? Can you do that? Before I ever went to the seminar, then I went to the seminar and I kind of put together that 40 and 10% and I gave about 50% of what I knew to those particular folks at that particular time. And it was great. I'm glad I did it and it was wonderful. Next day I had another seminar. People had come after the first seminar, asked me more questions. I learned a lot more. So back to the Greyhound. I've been playing with the pencils since then. So that's another year or more since, yeah, year, year, since, since that point in time. They are incredibly versatile, but I'm sitting here on the Greyhound and I've been playing with oils because particularly the Greyhound, my stipulation on that particular project was no pigments or yeah, no pigments and mostly oils. And so everything up to a particular point was with the oils and I was just not getting that last 10% that I was looking for. And I was, so I broke, broke, broke out the pencils and I started drawing some staining and rain marks and the rest of it on the sides things. And one of the techniques I've always had found along the way was once you sharpen the pencil, you get the shavings, you pull out the you know the pulp and you could dissolve the uh, pencil shavings in water and just paint it on like a paintbrush, so I was doing that, and it just dawned on me because I was looking for that more sprayed kind of as you 're traveling kind of effect, and it just dawned on me if I could dissolve this in my tray, I could probably dissolve it in my airbrush cup let 's see what happens so i don 't have Test pieces. (laughs) I I I don't I don't. That's not the way my mind works. I take my shavings, I put them in my cup, I put some water in there, I whisk it up with a paintbrush, I get a solution, and I start spraying the side of of the greyhound. And the pictures you saw on Instagram, Scott, that you're referring to, are literally moments after I did that. It's like, oh gosh, this is going to work. It came out of my gun. It didn't clog it up. That's cool. A plus on that one. It's hit my side of my vehicle. That's great. It's kind of got the effect I'm looking for. I'm going to take a picture of this real quick just because I'm really excited about this right now. And so then the next step was, and I think the photograph that you see on the Instagram has a paintbrush in it because one of the keys on the the pencils are that they're water soluble and you can keep manipulating them with water over time. And so I'm brushing down on this thing with a damp brush, literally while I'm taking a photograph of it to see if I can take off the paint as a water washable paint. And sure enough, you could. So that's that's where that post came from. That's the excitement of the moment of the innovation. It's like, oh my gosh, this is a really cool idea. I was excited about it. I don't know if anybody else is going to be excited about it, but for me, it was a really cool trick. And one more thing I can add to my little arsenal.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Never seen, seen, obviously seen anything, you know, where somebody's taken the pencils and used them in that way.
4: I kind of feel like I'm breaking the rules when I'm doing that. You know, it's like <laughs> Pencils are for drawing and scratching and sketching and stuff. And then all of a sudden you're putting it through an airbrush. It's like, what the heck?
0: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you, you just kind of hit on what, what I found, you know, incredibly inspiring about your work is that you know, you're taking a traditional product like that pencil and you're using it in ways that I never thought would be possible just even outside of airbrushing. So, you know, I've been following your Instagram a lot, even at the show in Chattanooga. I like the stuff so much. I ordered direct from Spain at the show, you know, as soon as, where I don't think they were released yet. So I know I ordered from Spain as soon as they became available based on, you know, what you were showing at the show and, and what was, you know, what the potential was there. So, that's what I really like about your work is taking those uh, maybe maybe the dogma and the hobby you know using this is this is the way you should use it. It's like well you know there's there's a lot of other different ways, and you're certainly proving that with with the techniques that you're essentially pioneering. I find it you know I follow your Instagram, every post is really educational for me, and as and you know as Scott hit on i I think that's you know what's interests me most about your work, and I always look forward to another post for that reason, switching gears maybe a little bit you know, we've talked about Instagram a lot, but one of the things that I, I've known you for even before Instagram was your blog, Propaganda. <laughs> and, you know, for, for the listeners that haven't seen it, I'll, I'll certainly post a link online, you know, it, it reminds me of an online magazine, your graphic design, your, your structure in each of the articles is, is really easy to follow. And if you could just maybe expand on, you know, how, how did that blog come about?
4: Well, thanks, John. So the blog itself—and not propaganda as it is right now—but the blog itself came back. The origins of that was actually back when I was had my aspiring to be recognized and and be um, published back in the day, and it was like whatever those blogs were back in the day. Since then, I've I've obviously I've got a website. It's called Propag- Rick Lawler Propaganda. You can Google it; it shows up. That is kind of my storehouse of all my articles, everything, my projects that I'm working on are past projects. That's where they hang out. And I've got a hard drive with all my projects and articles, and I've got that that I make uh, visible for the public. What you see there, as you scroll through all these different things, different articles, are... Pretty much one-to-one representations of what has been published in one magazine or another for the last, I don't know, 10 years or whatever it's been. There's a lot of stuff newer that's not on there right now because it just needs to wait until it hits the eye, the public, before I put it up there. I think, so for me, it it served two purposes. One, it was a storehouse for just to archive what I've done, my pictures, my photos, my articles, and that kind of stuff. And secondly, I believe that the same way that Planet Armor played such a wonderful role and a lot of other modelers through the internet and emails and all the rest of that stuff in helping me kind of tune and figure out what I was doing and and be critical and offer suggestions, all the rest of it, it was a way for me to throw everything out there that I do step by step. And I try to describe it more or less all the way through as an article would how to do at least what I do, you know, it's not the only way to do it. It's not necessarily the right way to do it, but this, this is what it ended up with. And this is how I did it to get to that point in time. So you can go through there and take a look at it and take what you will and, and leave the rest. I you know, it doesn't matter to me. And, and you'll see over time it's not necessarily in a sequential order per se but you'll see older stuff that you know the camera's not great and the photographs aren't great and the techniques are pretty sketchy and then you'll see newer stuff where everything looks kind of like I do right now it shows my evolution my learning curve through the entire thing I'm learning new techniques it'll show I mean it'll reference uh, different techniques I'm working on because I'm working for one company or another and what I'm trying to promote for that particular project with that particular company. So, you know, it's kind of my open book of modeling, I guess.
1: Well, Why we're talking about that, Rick, is there a part of the process, whether it's the research or the construction or the finish, but is there a part of the process that is always your favorite, something you always look forward to? It's ev- <laughs> It's evolved. It's
4: over time. If you would have asked me this question back in that moment when I was 4 a.m. and in, in working on that Luke's years ago, I would have said every part of the process was equally important to me. By the time I got to the end of it, I was so tired of painting and weathering that I was looking forward to the construction and vice versa. These days, I'm more, I'm more looking forward to, to the painting and weathering parts of stuff I feel guilty when I kind of short shift the, the uh, construction, <laughs> you know, because I know that there's much more that I could do. You know, I could, I could, I could add a bunch of photo etch. I could take care of weld beads. I could do this, that, and everything else in terms of the construction. And I just find, I don't have the patience for that right now. And I just kind of want to move towards, towards the finishing part. I'm also not, terrible speaking of learning curves i'm terrible at this but i am absolutely enthralled with figure painting right now and the 135th guys are still just an enigma to me but i got a little bust not too long ago it's actually on my facebook page on the header right now this charlie sheen guy from platoon so it was a bigger bust 116th or whatever they are and that was a scale that i could actually kind of handle and manipulate so figures and Figure painting, it, it, it kind of comes and goes in my, in my interest level because I think there's a lot, whether you paint figures or not, there's a lot what figure painters do in terms of light and shadow and all the rest of that, that translate. But right now I just kind of keep thinking like, oh, I just want to be a great figure painter because that goes back into the dioramas and the vignettes and the rest of it. If I can get those two things to come together in equal status, then that would be that's like one of my personal goals,
0: you know. But right now my figures are just not there. I mean looking at the bust, it, it looks pretty pretty there to me. Uh you know, if if that's if that's your getting in a serious at figure painting, it's it's gonna be scary, you know, when revisiting your skills in about a year because it's it's really, really well done. Well thanks. And you're using the you know, the AK third gen acrylics, how do you find those? I know they're a relatively newer product on the market.
4: Yeah. So I find them actually really good. So, you know, I'm going to be absolutely honest here without trying to burn too many bridges. Vallejo is for figure painting, for brush painting is the the top of the line. I think there's no dispute that that is the threshold that everybody's trying to get to. I got sent my stash of of Gen Threes, you know, right as they're being released or right before they got released and and, and such and started playing with them. And again, my I'm not a figure painter, so take it for what it's worth on this point. But I I flip back and forth between the two. I mix the two together to get, you know, shades and stuff. Gen threes are just absolutely fantastic. I really, really enjoy them. I use a wet palette and they, they hold up well on the wet palette. Um, they dry to a fantastic mat that I really enjoy for the for painting stowage and, and you know armor sense or painting figures for clothing and such. So I've I've been super happy with them.
0: Nice. Have you tried airbrushing them at all?
4: Yes, I have tried airbrushing with them. And back to first experiments here. So I got my my sets and Fernando says, "Here, go go play with them. See what you think." They've been tested. They've been great. They've been wonderful. People love them. So I tried to throw them through my airbrush, and I was like, "This is not working for me." <laughs> I made
0: a feeling. That's why I'm asking this question because I haven't found out how to shoot them yet.
4: This is not working for me. Well, the first project, the first project I tried them with that burn baby burn, the uh, truck that was the Mad Max themed truck that I did not too uh, last year, year before, that was. That was the first one that I tried to use them on. And I kind of figured it out by then. But when, when I did my experiments, they were not working, not working, not working. What they neglected to send me in my samples was the thinner. So I threw the thinner into it because he was, Fernando was swearing. They're working. They're fine. We've tested them, everything else. I'm like, they're not working for me. I'm not. I'm not throwing this out there. I'm not pretending like I'm using these and, and I'm using Tamai or whatever it is because these are not working for me. So they sent me a bottle of the thinner. And what I found is that you have to thin it to a higher ratio than what I was used to. Say, So I just use water with my Vallejos. And it's usually about 50-50 if I'm running through the airbrush. It's probably 70-30 on the thinner to Gen 3s. Once I got that figured out, they, they spray really, really well. I'll still go to real colors if I'm doing, you know, just base coating and and most armors and stuff. Real color is the real deal; those are great.
1: Yeah, we're big fans of the AK real colors paint, and both of us use a lot of it. It's really good stuff. Really like the uh, uh, acrylic lacquer hybrids as far as airbrushing goes. Yeah. So you know, we talked a little bit about your favorite step in modeling. What's your least favorite part of in in modeling?
4: Cleaning up road wheels.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> you know, I don't know. All the at least stuff that takes forever. You know, if you want to put the, the, the things I really, really enjoy. So when I get a new project coming in, you know, I'll spend some time trying to research what what it is. What whatever the case might be. You know, talk about a Mad Max car I'm looking at. I, I watch Fury Road just to get a sense of what Mad Max cars look like and what they were doing and how they chipped them and weathered them for the movies and everything else just to kind of get a sense of that. Any project that comes through, I'll spend, you know, some time, you know, sometimes more than others times looking at the research. I enjoy that. It's, it's a delve into history and whatever it is that it comes up, but I enjoy the history part, the, the research part. I don't enjoy cleaning up fiddly parts. I don't enjoy when I find out that I've glued something on backwards which is happening from time to time, you know, those kind of things. But there's not a part of it I don't enjoy. It's just there's certain things that are tasks and there are certain things that are very uplifting in terms of sitting at your bench like, okay, here we go. This is going to be great. And you lose yourself for three hours and there you go.
0: No, I, I totally get it. I kind of want to go back on a tangent, uh, you know, because it's it's one of my favorite projects that you've built. You know, it always draws attention because I think it's probably – you know, one of the most respectful presentation of of a you know a very, you know, sorrow event in, in, in history and, and it, it's right in the name of, of your project, Burden of Sorrow, the the rail car and, and the story that's being told there. Can you expand on that project and maybe talk about, you know, how did you approach such a sensitive topic, you know, quite frankly, with such grace, and really pull off a diorama that that honestly deserves to be in a museum? Well, thank you for the introduction. So I had, obviously, I I
4: know of the subject just because of my interest in history, and and it's a terrible subject, but, you know, it's one that we have to look at, I think, if we're going to be true to looking at history, even in modeling, you know, there's all parts of history that the good and the bad and the ugly that we have to at least recognize. So as a family, we'd visited Washington, D.C. a few years before the project and went through the Smithsonian's, and the Holocaust Museum had just opened not too too long before we had visited. And we had a young child at that time, so we went through fairly quickly. A couple of years later, I was at the Amps in Virginia. I was flying in and out of DC, so I had an extra day in DC. So I went back to uh, the Holocaust Museum because I didn't feel like I had had enough time to really explore it. And so I did. I was really lucky at the very beginning that I had a docent who was a Holocaust survivor who just happened to be wandering around the bottom floor as you walk into this thing. And we started chatting things up a little bit. And he, I think, recognized that I knew a little bit about the history of the Holocaust and what we were looking at and stuff. So he, he followed me and explained a few things with me. And then he had to go back to his his station, which was great because it was really nice to visit with that old gentleman. And then I walked through the museum and, and most pronounced for me. As I went through the museum, there's a section where you, you come in and there's, I can't remember if the backdrop is, there's a backdrop, I can't remember what it is, but what in the foreground are all these shoes, thousands and thousands and thousands of shoes. And as you walk into this particular room, which is like the drop off of what these cars are where they collect the shoes and things like that, is the smell. It smells like old leather, it smells musty. Given the context of that smell, knowing where those shoes came from and the circumstances was just absolutely overwhelming. It was at that moment that I thought to myself, if there's some way, if there's some way to kind of capture this, that would be great. You know, so then I get, you know, on the airplane, I come back home to the Pacific Northwest and, you know, and it's in the back of my head and I'm not sure how to do this. But it's in the back of my head to so probably do a couple more projects i don't I don't know exactly lz models comes out with the the train that train wagon not too not too long maybe six months after i that visit or whatever it was in a resin kit and i went like okay i can see this in my head now you know here's that train car the infamous train car the first you know mini art does them now a bunch of other folks do them now but that was the first one if i could pull this off. I think, you know, that's, that's the element I need. I need something that's the significant, you know, the backdrop, whatever it is. I, I, I'm trying to think of the word that I need, but that's what, that's what it needed. An anchor piece, maybe. Anchor piece. That's, that's what I needed. I needed something to, to build around this thing. So I ordered the I, I emailed LIBOR at that time that got the model to me and, and such, you know, it just started of every piece that I've ever built. that was. It still is the most emotional piece, you know, I'm emotional right now about it. I started building it, and the underside of it, in terms of a kit, there's a ton of brass work you have to do to do all the linkages and everything else. You know, I'd done brass work before, you know, bending, copper wire, and all the rest of that stuff to put all together in photo etch and everything else. But uh, it felt on this particular project that everything was just that much easier just that much better and then as i started getting it together and <clears throat> you know i ordered the trumpeter rails so it would sit on and i got those in and i'm starting to play around with you know how to mock this thing up what what's it going to look like you know i got i got this rail car going to the holocaust you know and that's kind of as far as I, I was getting in my head i was looking through pictures talk about doing research looking through all those pictures. And we're like, you know, it needs to be simple. It needs to be representative. It needs to be non-graphic, but again, powerful and representative. And it needed a figure. And so back to the figure thing, I'm not a figure painter. I don't pretend to be. At that time, back to Planet Armor, I'd gotten a pretty good relationship with Marcus Lack. He was a modeler out of Germany. He also was on Missing Links quite a bit. And he was doing some pretty darn good figures and armor at that particular point in time. So, and we'd had some conversations about other stuff. So I emailed Marcus and I said, Hey, I got this thing that I'm doing right now. Would you be interested in becoming involved with it? I need a figure. I need a a figure. and I need it painted. Told him what it was all about. Jewish Jewish fellow pushing a cart because I had it. I had the concept by that point and he said, yeah, I'd be absolutely. Do you want me to find a figure or do you want to send me something? Or do, how do you want to do it? So what I did is I got a figure and I kind of whittled away and did a bit of scratching on the figure and conversion on a figure and sent it off to Marcus. He got it and he wrote back and he said, Hey, do you mind if I do some alterations on this? And I said, heck <laughs> <"Hack> no, <laughs> go for it. Basically, you know, do what you want with it, and I'll make do with whatever you've got left. So he – and if you look at propaganda, you'll find Burden of Sorrow there, and you'll see a section there where Marcus has – there's a point where I kind of segue into what Marcus, in terms of photographs and, and work, sent back to me. But, you know, over time, he sent these this model, this little figure back to me, and it was absolutely gorgeous, absolutely not overdone, not underdone, It was perfectly representative and it was, it was fantastic. And so from there, I think I'd already built the cart because I had the hands. I built the cart and started adding uh, stowage to the cart. And then I started again, getting into the research and stuff. And I found a photograph of a couple. I think the last name was Newstead, which you'll see in the cart. That was a wedding photograph that they had been killed during the Holocaust. Um, it, it just, it was a special, special project. And even weathering the, the train car itself, I remember spending evenings doing the weathering on the sideboards and stuff and just taking deep breaths.
1: It's, it certainly shows in the peace and uh, the passion that you have for the, the subject. And like John said, the respect that you have for the subject, it, it really it really shows in your work. I don't know what another way to say it. So,
4: you know, the funny thing about it was, is I finished, I remember finishing that piece on a Friday, like, you know, Friday evening or whatever it was. And I took photographs probably Friday night, maybe Saturday. And I remember I I had them, they're ready to go and not knowing what to do with them because I knew that. I knew what could be the backlash you know the the negative backlash from from doing that subject, because you know as as armor modelers, military modelers, you know we know that there are certain things I don't know if we know this, but it's kind of a undercurrent that there are certain things you just don't necessarily portray you don't portray a lot of blood, you don't portray a lot of that kind of stuff all day Sunday goes by, and about four in the afternoon on Sunday, I went ahead and posted it on missing links and i turn off the computer, and I walked away for about two, three hours because I just did not want to even deal with it. I got back on, and at that point, there was probably, I don't know, 1,200 responses at that point in time. And you know, missing links is a little bit different than Facebook now for those people who are a little bit younger. You don't just click like or not like or whatever. You have to actually say something for every post. So people were actually logging on and saying something. I started going through them, thinking the worst to start out with. And I got 30, 50 of them into it. And I'm going like, oh my God, people get it. And it was, it, was, it was crazy. Every so often, it's like you get the person who would say, and they still do, this is supposed to be a hobby and I don't do this for seeing the bad of the world. I, I want to do this for relaxation and enjoyment. Okay, fine. That, I, I understand that. I respect that. I do this for lots of different reasons, including that, but I also do it for other reasons, which happen to do with a reflection of history, a reflection of society sometimes, if I'm good. So by the end of, you know, the second or third day, there's like, I, don't, I can't remember what it was, like 3000 responses. I think Brett Green emailed me and said, we've never seen anything like this. So I was like, okay, there you go.
1: Yeah, I was on Missing Links. I remember that, and I remember being blown away by it the first time I saw it as well. It certainly makes an impact on you.
4: Well, well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it was definitely from the heart and the soul. You know, it, it's interesting because we get as modelers, we get into these philosophical. You, know, you see them all the time on Facebook: is is modeling art or not art? I would say yes, it's art in a, a broad sense. For me, that particular piece, when I think of artists, that's as close as I've ever come to creating art.
1: I can definitely see that you know that's something we've been speaking with a lot of our guests about you know sort of is modeling art and where do you know where where do modelers fall in that spectrum, where do you draw that line and I certainly think that when you talk about whether it's a sculptor or a painter bringing your own vision of your own replication of life to a piece like this one in particular. And like I said before, I think it's something that in your work that you're particularly good at is telling that story and bringing out that emotion and representing a moment in time. I think that definitely qualifies as art, at least it does in in my little brain, so...
0: I, I would fully agree, and, and maybe my last question on the subject is: You know, Rick, do you still own that piece? Is is it at your house, or where, where does it reside now?
4: No, I still got it. There was a, at one point there was some talk about sending to um, I can't remember the name of the museum in, in Israel for it to sit there, and that didn't come to fruition. So it, it's still at my house at this point. There's some plan to send it off to Spain because Fernando wants it. He's putting together a collection. In Spain, of of people who have worked with AK and their works and stuff, so it may end up there. But right now, it's at my house. It sits It sits down there. The the little nameplate has fallen off, but otherwise, it's it's fine. It came unglued. Nice, nice. Yeah, you yeah. know yeah, that that one will stay with me, one way or another. That that one doesn't go up to the trash bin.
1: Well, I wanted to talk about another one of your projects a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, I really like the one you made called "Where the Streets Have No Name." is the uh, Soviet self-propelled gun over in Syria. Wondering if you could maybe talk about how that came together and the various elements that you use to make a scene that looks like it's, you know, right out of a modern day conflict.
4: I was so particularly that piece, you know, the Syrian conflict was going on like crazy right now. And there's at this point, you know, YouTube is, is your friend and you can just find all these references of the conflict in real time, which is crazy, scary, crazy. And, and the photographs that come out of it as well, the stills and stuff like that. So that was the impetus of it. And there was quite a few other modelers who were starting to pick up on that at the same time. So it's the trumpeter kit, it's real tracks. More importantly to me at that point was I wanted, I felt like I wanted to build the building itself, the one that's off to the left side. When you look at it, Yeah. you know, I, I came from, part of my background was a lot of fabrication for like movie sets and things like that. And I hadn't done that for a long time, just built something. And so that was kind of the start of the the entire project. I want to build a little cityscape or building scene or something like that. And so then it kind of turned around like, okay, where are my, where are my references? Where can I draw from and go back from that? And so it's like, okay, I can build a Syrian street scene i could put this um afv in the in the middle of it and do the rubble and all the rest of that kind of stuff at the same time you can see some of the final photographs where i kind of i'm also really enjoying photoshop and so i mirrored a city street city street behind it so it looks pretty seamless so you can see a bigger scape of of what it
1: is yeah what i really like about that piece is it's obviously about an armor piece but yet the care and the love that you put into the rubble and the debris and the structures themselves, you know, the armor piece almost becomes instead of like the main course of the meal, it almost becomes sort of a, you know, an element in the stew. You know, it's the overall picture again of what you're conveying. It's not all just about the, the armor model.
4: I appreciate you saying that because one of the things that, I personally enjoy, so when we start talking about dioramas and vignettes and all the rest of that stuff, I actually like making the scene. So talk about things you like and don't like. I like making the scene, the ground and all the rest of that stuff, as much or more than I do the model itself. I think that there's a lot. Maybe it's just that I have a knack for it. I'm not sure. It seems to come easier for me that I I can build groundscapes that seem to look like what they're supposed to easier than I can make a rain mark that's supposed to look like it's supposed to sometimes. (laughs) So the rubble and things like that. uh, I appreciate you saying that because, and it's for me, It it, like I said, it comes sort of second nature. It's, it's like, let's get some plaster, let's put it in a bowl. Let's let it harden. Let's crunch it up with some, uh, with a hammer and spread it around with the super with Elmer's glue and then paint it out. But it's that time you take in painting it out and finding the right little piece to put in there. And then using the, right type of brick and putting a little mortar on the side and all the rest of that kind of stuff that I'm glad that you notice it. I don't know that people necessarily notice some of that kind of stuff, but I think that's when people view our works on a table, for instance, you know, why does this one grab attention versus that one over there? And I think it's yeah. the little things that people don't necessarily recognize or notice, but in your head is like, oh, this makes sense. This is the full, the full story.
0: No, for sure. I, outside of that city one, the, the diorama I admire of yours is end of the line with the really rusty trains, the connex, and then the diversity of vegetation around it. Again, it goes back to what you just said. It's, it's, it's that environment you're creating uh, is, is extremely convincing and what sticks out the most to me in your work because it, it tells that story. It sets the scene. And if you found a background for it, you could almost put it, you could believe it as a photograph with a little bit of Photoshop. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, that one came about because
4: uh, that was actually a work project, I think, for the Rust. Mm-hmm. So that was a, that's all HO gauge stuff. So I went to the local train shop, got these couple of engines and cars. I don't know if you guys know this, but HO scale engines are not cheap.
1: <laughs> yeah, they are not.
4: <laughs> and then when the first thing you do is just open them up and rip out everything that's on the inside. <laughs> It's like, you know, that the guy at the behind the counter was not going to be happy with if he knew what that was going to be, but that's what I did. And so I got some HO trains and HO track and, and then laid it out. And, you know, it's all referenced on those boneyards that are, I think are in Argentina. I think it is, where they just got these train graveyards sitting out there where they're just sitting out in the middle of nowhere. The, the, the vegetation you talk about, John, you know, you, you kind of have to bounce, even though that was my, my reference for aesthetics, you kind of have to balance things out. so if you just leave it a sandy scape, like which what those are in in the middle of nowhere, it just doesn't look correct there's no scale, there's no context, there's no you know reference there, so you've got to kind of draw it back in so that's like where the tufts of grass and this that and everything else, and the piles of stuff kind of come in is that you know you kind of have to fudge realism with art this is where the arts start coming back into this conversation is you kind of have to fudge those two back and forth together in order to make it something that's conceptually pleasing and appealing to the viewer and makes sense.
1: No, just that's, that's very insightful. If somebody came to you and said, Rick, you, you are uh, lucky enough to uh, do your hobby for your, your job. How, uh, how would you advise them to kind of proceed? What's the process for Uh, taking your craft to a level where not only is it something that you're passionate about, but it's something that you do for a job?
4: The first piece of advice is to realize that it's a job. It's not your hobby on steroids, but it's a job. And and that means everything that every job means that it is. You get up in the morning and you go to work and you, you work as hard as you can at doing what it is that is in front of you. There's a misconception that doing this Doing our hobby and making a living at it is some sort of dream come true. And yes, it is. It's a blessing. There's no doubt about that. I, starting when I was five years old, who would have thought that this is where I would be you know, 50 years later? So that part's a blessing. When you decide to make that leap or that jump or you're given that opportunity to start using those skills and those talents and of your hobby and your passion, to maybe make some money at it, well then that changes the equation. All of a sudden it gets real for at least the person on the other side who's gonna be paying you the money. They're expecting something from you. That's the point where you have to take it as, this is a job, I have a commitment, and I'm gonna fulfill these commitments to the best of my ability. It means making deadlines, it means taking projects that you don't wanna do, um, building things you don't want to build it means you know all sorts of different things that any job entails you know everybody goes to work and they don't love everything they do every day on their in their job and sometimes it gets to be a grind and that's no different if you're working in this industry versus any other industry
1: and and that and that's kind of what sets this work apart in my mind is that you can take a project that you're not really super excited about like the train one we just talked about the end of the line and you can take some products that you've been employed to kind of show people demonstrate what they're capable of and then you've been able to create something at an extremely high level to do that and so you've kind of taken that passion for your hobby and kind of paused it a little bit and taken what you have to do for your job and you've been able to create still create art from that and that's i think that's a tribute to your to your skill and to your work
4: well i appreciate that feedback thank you you know sometimes it feels like i'm just making work making product i guess is is, is what it is and you know honestly sometimes that's what comes out is just product for whatever the case may be and but that's what's called for at that particular point in time so I don't have any regrets that at certain times the work that I produce isn't the top of my game because the top of my game wasn't necessary for that particular moment. When you start working within the industry and, and you're doing production of, in the sort that I do, you know, making models and writing and editing and all the rest of that stuff, there's an end goal and the end goal is this, this final product. You don't need to make a masterpiece every every single time for that final product, you know if it's a box art that you're working on that's showing three different colors of paint well then you just need to show box art of a model with three different colors of paint on it, or you know how a mud splatter works with the bottle that's. In in your hand right now, that's that's a representation of what you can do with this particular product. That's a very different mindset and a very different application and a very different end goal than coming up with burden of sorrow.
1: But there there's still a lot of value to it.
4: Yeah, there's absolutely value to it. I mean, I kick myself, you know, go back to the beginning of this thing. I kick myself every day, and I've said this out loud to a number of people. It's like, who would have thunk? I would be doing this all these years later, working in the model industry, you know, the industry that I love, that was my hobby all this time. And somehow I figured out by hook and crook, how to kind of weave my way into it and do all these, do all these different things that are directly or indirectly related to the industry. That's, that's a pretty, pretty neat trick. (laughs) And I'm not sure how I pulled it off.
0: Yeah, so knowing that, you know, let's 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 go with a a topic that we really like to ask modelers. You know, you kind of hinted at it before when you mentioned going to Euro Military. Who in the hobby influences you? Who are your major influencers? Uh, You know, I knew this question was coming. The good answer
4: is everybody. I have been lucky to run across a lot of people that I have admired, who have spent time with me and talked to me. And there are people who I admire from afar that have no idea that I exist, but I see their work and I'm just absolutely amazed at what they do. You know, the current crop of people that we see every day, if I say one, I'll miss 20. (laughs) You know, this is the kind of the answer that I know you're going to get all the time. There are people, okay, I'll I'll start naming a, a few. I think Dave Parker, doesn't get the credit he deserves for what he, he does fantastic work across the board, no matter what he's working on. And now that he's working on this one sixteenth scale stuff and adding printing to it, I think is revolutionary and he's, yeah. he's pathfinding on, on that particular front. I think everybody knows who he is, but nobody ever mentions him. So Dave, you get a You get a kudos from me on that one. You know, people who have really lent me a hand over the years. Adam Wilder, you know, we got to be friends when I was working with Make Productions and stuff. We would still keep in touch. Not so much on the technical side of things and stuff, but I got to see his work when he was still in Spain, see what he was doing and talk to him about his work, how he did what he does. A little bit of the business side behind the scenes which was very important at that point. That's before I started working for MIG Productions. Well, when I met Adam and Meg in Spain is when I started working for MIG Productions. So I got to see behind the scenes to explain what was going on and things like that and how the business side of things worked. Um, that was important. In my quest to first be published way back when, it was Mike Rinaldi who emailed me and said, You know, I think your work is pretty good, but you need a better camera. Damn, guess what? Christmas, I got a new camera. (laughs) That made a difference. Then I hit him up a few dozen times after that to talk about his settings and Lightroom. I know he's discussed it on your website about how he takes photographs and stuff, and I take some of that with me. Sam Dwyer, Back to the Planet Armor days, he was one of those guys that was consistently building really high – Top notch stuff was being published at that point in time and had a good writing style that I really admired. And so started to back to my, when I first got published, it sounded like a recipe book. I started reading some of Sam's stuff and realizing, oh, you don't have to be a recipe book to talk about how you make models in that same vein. John Steinman was also writing at that time for MMIR. He's back in new part of the world in Vermont. He had a very conversational way of good model, excellent model, but a conversational way of, of writing that, again, I admire. I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. You know, for me, the light bulb finally went off. It's like, I don't have to tell you everything I'm doing every time. If you like what I'm doing, hopefully I'm going to do this for a while. And over the course of a number of articles and maybe hopefully years, you'll get my total picture. But I don't have to tell you everything in one fell swoop. I don't know. There's a, God, there's a ton of guys. Chuck Doan, you know, I love the way he works. It's
1: amazing. Yeah, I love way yeah.
4: he works. Again, I'm just kind of touching on a couple of people around the world. There's aircraft guys that just blow me away. There's sci-fi guys that just, the guys out of Japan, who take those, their Gundams and stuff and wreck them and saw them up and put them back together and everything. It's like, holy smokes. You guys are insane there's a ton of, ton of people, you know, the guys I mentioned are people that kind of are at my basis.
1: You had just mentioned science fiction modeling. Now I see a pretty varied amount of, of subjects on your page. I mean, you did a, a single railroad car. There's a, I like your float plane that you did. That was the puddle jumper. That was pretty cool. But what about like, you ever think you might do like a machinenkrieger or something along those lines, science fiction build? Yeah,
4: I don't know if it's on propaganda, but there's there's a little mecca that's due for a publication pretty soon. So I don't know if I've posted it yet or not. If it's there, it's there. I'm not sure. I can't remember what I've posted lately, updated with. So I've done a little bit of, of science fiction stuff. I, I really, really enjoy it. I've got a good friend who opened up a sci-fi gaming shop fairly near me a couple of years ago. So I visited him a few times and I was going to do some demos and stuff there. So he ended up ordering a bunch of product and stuff. And I was going to do some demos there at a shop with all his gaming nerds. And then the COVID thing started happening. And so that hasn't happened, but I've got a bunch of his samples and stuff that I, I kind of plug away with on YouTube. Like if I'm modeling, sometimes I'll have YouTube on next to me and maniac. I watch him. I watch a lot of these miniature game guys do painting and stuff because, again, I want to be a figure painter at some point in time, so I'm just watching people and listening to them in the background as I'm doing my thing. And a lot of them have, have to do with sci-fi and fantasy and that kind of stuff, uh, mechs and that kind of stuff, because they're, that's what they do. They paint figures one way or another, You know, whether it's a human figure or some mech thing. A lot of those things translate back and forth. So as you talk about highlighting and edging and chipping and that kind of stuff, depending on what the subject is, a lot of that stuff translates between all the worlds. So I'm always trying to kind of keep a ear out for those guys and, and watch them when they pick my interest. And they have different techniques too, which is always really fun to watch too. It's like, oh, look at that. That's neat.
1: Yeah. I've been uh, interested in a lot of the dry brushing techniques that figure paint, figure painters, you know, they've developed different shaped, brushes and you know they bring a layering approach that us armor guys would do with an airbrush but they're doing it with paint brushes it's interesting fascinating
4: yeah isn't that interesting as armor guys we kind of shun like say dry brushing and stuff like that some techniques because also they're out of favor old hat or whatever but you know these guys might be watching one of our old sites and then they go like well that's a pretty cool way to bring out the wrinkles in this particular skin or the edges and whatever and so I'm not one to say we don't do any technique that's just gone and forgotten. That, that's absolutely. Dry brushing in particular. Dry brushing with oils? Holy smokes. Do you know how great that is? Take some oil paints and dry brush them over your armor. That's subtle, nice highlighting or edging or wear or
0: rust or whatever you want, to, whatever color you got on that. Try that. that that's a tip for you guys. Yeah, you know, you hit on something. Dry brushing—it's—it's it's, you know, when people say it, they do a cringe. But as you mentioned, you, th- you think back to um, you know Tony Greenland, for and it, but it has evolved. And and one of the names you mentioned earlier, who I follow a lot, Spencer Pollard—you know—still dry brushes a lot of his work, bring out some subtle details. And like you just said, it's a technique that, when done very tactically, it really serves a purpose and create effects that you, you honestly can't really do with anything else.
2: Yeah,
4: absolutely, and and you you brought that up where you know techniques evolved. So when you're talking about Greenland and especially like Verlinden, and you know I mentioned that first diorama that I did with thirty five millimeter film, those publications, the only outlet for those were black and white at that particular time. Maybe one color photograph if they were lucky on the cover, whatever it was. So techniques were were developed, or those techniques were developed at that particular point in time in order to make it so noticeable, you know, you could not, you could not, the camera would not pick up subtle shading and this, that, and everything else. So move forward. Now we got these fantastic cameras that can pick up everything too much of everything. In my opinion, half the time, those same techniques just change, you know, dry brushing to a hard metallic white edge, like Verlinden used to have to do is so to show up in a black and white. Of course is going to look silly right now, but you change those colors and you change the, the pressure of the stroke on the brush and all the rest of that kind of stuff. It's absolutely a valid technique right now. It's just you need to tone it down and change it because what we see with our eye is now what is being seen
0: captured on film for the most part. And then, you know, I think maybe you've certainly probably done this is, you know, reverse dry brushing, you know, the same, you know, technique with using the brush and kind of the same motions, but instead of adding paint, you know, you're starting to wear that, upper surface away to expose a burnished underlying paint or, or metallic surface that you're trying. Yeah, absolutely. Some of my best effects have been actually when I've
4: over-weathered something and then taken them back off and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this looks actually
2: great.
1: For those people who aren't as familiar with your work and now that, that, you know, they've heard you talking with us, where can people see your work? Probably the easiest
4: place is, well, first you can just Google Rick Lawler. Generally my images and my website will pop up. Uh, Rick Lawler Propaganda is the website, and that's where I archive all my older articles. To some degree, I write articles on that site. Some of them are visible, some are not visible, and once they get published, I'll turn them into visible. So that's kind of my work in progress a lot of times. I was the editor of the Weathering Magazine for about three years And so a lot of my work is in the Weathering Magazine from about 2010 to 12, 13, or I don't know if I got got that right. But anyway, there's a lot of work in the Weathering Magazine up to about issue 20 or something like that. I have been in a a number of books that have been published either by Ammo or AK Interactive. You can find a lot of the specialty books that have to do with either specific um, types of armor, like IDF or something like that, or techniques, that kind of thing. And then in the future, there's a ton of. I'm working for AK now, so there's a ton of stuff that's in the works in the pipeline, as they say. That's going to be in publications one way or another, either standalones of myself or with other folks for thematics. Instagram, I guess I got that too. I think it's Rick. Lawler. I'm not very good at this. This PR thing. so
0: we'll post all the links. It's it's okay. I think you know. I yeah, think thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So you know, maybe a tangent, Rick. Again, i if if we're talking too long, let me know. But have you have you experimented at all with three D printing? Either used it within your modeling or done some modeling in CAD uh, and have gotten pieces printed.
4: Uh, so I the Greyhound actually has a couple of three D printed parts on it, just aftermarket stuff my background over the last 6 years has been in 3D printing as as my career so engineering printing reverse engineering that whole that whole thing so i've got a huge background in it i don't have a printer at this point in time i don't really want the printer because i'm been surrounded by printers and and all the cad work has been done by the engineers and stuff and so i just let them do it. I was always a project manager on that kind of stuff. You know, at some point in time, you know, I, I've said this for years and years and everybody else is saying it now too. It's like, you know, I think the 3d printer on the side of the workbench is going to be as common as the airbrush pretty darn quick. If, if not already, it's, it's, it's there. They're two, $300 seen as a compressor. And there you go. The files are available through a number of sources. So you don't need to necessarily know how to do CAD work to do that. If you decide to do the CAD work, you know, that's a whole other wormhole that's going to take a bunch of your time and become a different interest and hobby for you in order to figure out how to do that and, and do that. But that's a fantastic way to do it as well. Um, print your own parts, create your own parts. You know, it's, it's right there. I, it's absolutely wonderful. It's phenomenal. I think if, if you don't, if you don't embrace it, you're foolish uh, one way or another you know, either buying it, just buying the aftermarket parts or somehow getting involved one way or another in terms of the creation of, of the parts and stuff. But it's going to revolutionize the model building industry, make an industry the hobby itself. Um, somebody out there will be, you know, ev- like I said, even if you don't want to do the CAD work, somebody will do it for you. You just got to find that person. It's going to be cottage Industries, brick all over the place. You know, you want some sort of an engine... Cover from some obscure one-off sort of whatever, some guy will cat it out for you and send you the file or print it out for you, and send you the part, or whatever the case may be.
1: I love the yeah, I love the 3D aspect of what you can print. I just picked up intake screens for my Tamiya KV1. And, you know, a lot of guys have been using PhotoEtch in that application, but these intake screens are completely see-through and there's so much more of a 3D element to these screens than a photo etch setup would be and you don't have to, you know, build an assembly on a KV that's going to end up being at least three or four parts and involve bending and soldering and everything that's there. It, yeah, it's it's really exciting what you can what you can get already.
4: Yeah, you get exactly the part as it's supposed to be and like you said the brackets and everything else are already there and it's got that th- it's 3D and it's 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 revolutionary. It actually is revolutionary. And, you know, at some point, you know, we won't be buying kits. I know we talk about this and there's the, the copyright and, and piracy and all the rest of that stuff. But at some point in time, we'll figure out a way that we'll just get the files and you'll download the file and print your kit. And that's, the, that's what we'll do.
0: Yeah, you know, you you mentioned one thing, and I've seen it in the gaming side, and, and I can't wait, you know, I hope one day it comes over to modeling, there's a website, I'll have to find it. Um, but it, you go there, and it's essentially, you know, make your avatar, and you can pick different weapons, you know, different poses, and it's all... You know, it's an interactive kind of 3D model, essentially. And I would love to see that someday in our hobby where it's like, hey, I want a GI from this period carrying a BAR. I want him kneeling, standing, you know, prone, like all these different things. I could see that someday
4: happening. Yeah, that's actually... So back to, to my work in my industry. So the front end of what we used to do for printing and stuff was we were doing scanning. So... In terms of, like, what you were saying, the easy way to do that is, you know, you want your guy from, you know, 1944 Western Front with the BAR or whatever in a kneeling pose. We would dress somebody up in costume, BAR, with sitting there kneeling. We would scan that guy, get all the digital data, and then there you go. You've got that guy. It's totally, I think, um, was it Live Resin? I think they do that kind. I think that's how they're getting their assets, if I don't.
0: I think they are, and then Andrea Miniatures has done some recently with their uh, oh gosh, everything from World War One, World War Two. I painted a Marine uh, where they go from everything. I think it's down to one forty eighth, all the way up to one sixteenth, uh, where they're scaling it, and it's all based on a you know a scan of a real guy because it, it has that different feel. Uh, if that makes sense, you know, you can, you could look at a, maybe a figure that's sculpted by someone, you know, literally sculpted as opposed to maybe a 3d scan or something even done in Z brush for that matter.
4: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's totally different. Plus you get, if it's a good scan and a good print and all the rest of it, you're getting texture too, cloth texture and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. It's absolutely difficult to do as, as, you know, there's some great figure sculptors. Let's not put that aside, you know, but mm-hmm. the scanning thing is a different – a whole different set of tools coming at you right there. And if that makes it into the industry in any sense of critical mass, that's going to change things as well because, you know, we were do, you know we could do a live scan of a person in costume and it, it takes five minutes. So say you want to do a whole Tamiya set of six guys, you know, grenadiers going off marching or whatever you got a half a day of one guy in different poses and you've got six assets already scanned into the database and then all you're doing is printing them out from that point forward
0: it's crazy are it, my own my own fan uh, my own curiosity here i assume you're using a lidar to scan these guys uh we were using artec
4: so, okay so it's basically the same idea yeah
0: okay cool Rick, this has been fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I have really enjoyed our time talking together, you know, everything from, you know, techniques to the thought behind things, the evolution of the hobby. It's, it's just been really valuable in the time that we've spent and, and we can't thank you enough. So it's again, thank you. Well, thanks, John. Thanks, Scott.
1: Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. It's been a fun conversation and, uh, it's always exciting when you get to talk to somebody whose work you've admired for a long time. So It's been a real pleasure.
4: Oh, absolutely. I I really appreciate it.
3: Well, we hope you enjoyed that uh, interview with Rick Lawler. Um, I know me personally speaking, I'm very disappointed I, I missed it. I would have loved to have the chance to to chat with Rick. And I think it's pretty great that that Scott and JB were able to sit down and, and talk to someone who I, like John said before the interview, I also uh, greatly respect and have followed for as long as I've been in, in uh, scale modeling.
2: All right, that will wrap it up for episode 17. Thanks so much for listening, and special thanks to Rick Lawler. Great interview, excellent guy, and I too am sorry I missed it. Coming up, episode 18, we are excited to announce that we will have a very special guest. Normally we would have a roundtable, but our special guest from the UK will be none other than Spencer Pollard, renowned aircraft and armor modeler and author. So until next time, to all of you out there in the posse, and especially to you guys, have a great couple of weeks, and we'll talk to you in two weeks.